0: If you guys wouldn't mind, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to get into some uh, instruction, teaching content right now. Book of 1 Peter. We've been in a series now. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some ushers, I'm sure, that are uh, handing out some Bibles right now if you guys need one. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'd like to uh, invite you all to stand one last time, I promise, before we're done um, for the reading of Scripture. We do this as, as an act of recognizing uh, there's an authority over us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, King Jesus, and he's given us word, scripture, that we submit our hearts to. And this is just a simple way of, uh, again, in our culture that just loves to challenge or be cynical towards any form of authority. As Christians, we reject that. We reject that. The very central aim of a Christian is to say, no, we have an authority king jesus we submit to him we let him reshape and challenge our our understandings our thoughts our ideas our ideologies we let him shape who we are as people as a community and how we are to live our lives and how we're to think about our emotions and our money and sexuality and every other aspect and detail of our lives we have an authority it's king jesus so I'd like to read just a little passage out of the book of First Peter, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 8. And then I'm going to comment on a couple things. So we've been in a series looking at this great book, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and chapter 3 right now, as I mentioned. I've uh, been looking at this subject of Christians that are really uh, attempting to follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of a culture that's been hostile towards them, uh, and even more so, to maybe put it in another context, uh, Peter is writing to them about the idea of what we've been looking at the past several weeks this is this concept of a good life. What does a good life look like, even in, this, even in the midst of... A pushback or hardships or challenges or difficulties or darkness, how could one actually embrace or live into this concept of a good life? So I want to read just a handful of passages here, and then I will pray, and then we'll get to work looking at this. Verse 8 says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called to, that you may obtain a blessing, Uh, verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, that's where we get the idea of a good life, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it, verse 15, you can skip on down to that as well and just kind of look at this little segment right here where he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we commit ourselves, our thoughts, our minds into your hands right now. We invite you to reshape us. We invite you to check us. We invite you, God, to push back on thoughts and ideologies that have strayed from truth. God, we pray that you would comfort us where we need comforting. Encourage us, Lord, where we feel discouraged. And, Lord, we just commit this time in your hands. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? Uh, as I mentioned, we've been looking at the subject of the good life. I have a little summary statement, kind of uh, would bring everything up to speed here, that uh, this idea of the good life, which is verse 10, is built upon this foundation of Jesus, which is verse 15, which is what we just read. Yet, yeah, as we look, saw last week, and again, like I mentioned, um, this is actually all one message, one sermon that... Basically spans three weeks, and no, it's not necessarily part one, part two, part three, um, but it's just one sermon. Again, if I have an opportunity to preach for an hour and a half as long as a feature-length film, which I don't, um, it would just, you'd be here in one sermon and that'd be a that, but I don't. So anyways, it goes on to say, yet there are occasions when disappointments and or difficulties cause one to question the reality of their faith, and what we described last week was that there are occasions where people enter into these moments of darkness or difficulty or hardship. Um, we described kind of the modern day terminology or language that gets appropriated to utilize um, in terms of trying to make sense of this is the word deconstruction. And there's all forms of uh, interviews that you can find, and podcasts, and people that are volunteering themselves and their time to kind of be a tour guide to your deconstruction in our modern world. And books written on the subject, and articles written on it that drop in Atlantic, and Christian Times, and Relevant Magazine, and all these other major publications. Uh, But the point of the matter is, is that it's not new. That's the thing I think it's important to identify. The concept of deconstruction is not new. It's been around For thousands, honestly, thousands of years. And what I've been trying to do is to say and acknowledge the fact there are good reasons why people oftentimes find themselves confronted with needing to dismantle whatever form of ideology or organizational concepts that they've been given or they've inherited. There's good reasons for that. And again, I'm not going to go into last week's message again, but my recommendation is that if you were not here last week, check out the podcast that we have on this and it'll go into all details. So but the point of the matter, there are good reasons, and I want to validate those reasons why people sometimes go through deep challenges and struggles and hardships, and they question not only maybe the faith, but they also question the church that basically imparted the faith into them. There's good reasons for that. But at the end of the day, what I really want to jump into today is I want to look at a variety of different terms. I don't necessarily have a slide for this, but throughout the historic Christian faith, and I would even say predating that, going all the way back into Old Testament lives of saints, um, there have been different names and terminology that have been given to the same idea, which we call in modern day parlance, uh, deconstruction of faith. So it's been known as either doubting one's faith, which is probably like uh, late 90s, early 2000s, um, or another term for it is called the dark night of the soul. Some have described this as spiritual depression. Others have called this the dark night of unknowing. I like that phrase, the dark night of unknowing, because the idea of unknowing is not just simply um, not knowing something, but in some cases it's actually unknowing unlearning certain characteristic behaviors or ideas or thoughts, the faith of those that are attempting to be faithful before Jesus, like what Peter is writing to in these lives of these faithful saints, there's occasions in order to fully engage to enter into the quote-unquote good life. There are moments where we have to unknow, unlearn certain ideas about God. Some of us learn Ideas about God that are, that are not fully developed, that are in some cases just straight up false. And, and again, I'm, I'm not just saying maybe you grew up in a cult. I'm saying you might have even grown up in a good evangelical, Christian, Americanized type of a church that gave you certain concepts about God that at some point are not fully sustainable to a life that develops into goodness. It creates goodness. In other words, at some point, it will fail you. And you will be faced with a moment of darkness of how will I proceed? Do I walk away from Jesus? Do I walk away from the faith that my grandpa shared with me, that my great-grandpa prayed for me? Do I just completely chart a new course based upon new information? Or do I cling to Jesus and seek to go back into the historic Christian teachings of the church and of the Bible and hold on to those? Even though there may be a lot of confusion, even though there may be contradictions that I've seen or things that I've observed in the way that the church has behaved or Christians have acted or other types of forms of just challenges that we find ourselves going through. So, with that being said, we looked last week at this idea of deconstruction. So, again, by way of review, I'll just give you like what is deconstruction? We said basically last week the idea of deconstruction is the process of reevaluating or reevaluating one's core beliefs. These could be mental map structures. Again, I'm not going to talk about that. I talked about that a little bit last week. About God, about self, and the world. And what I really wanted to do is I want to distinguish uh, these three aspects of it. Number one, deconversion is basically what oftentimes gets most publicity in today's world. This is someone who maybe at one point was a Christian, no longer is a Christian. They would fit into the camps of what modern sociologists would describe as either nuns or duns, meaning they have no affiliation with any form of church or, um, I don't know, denomination or so, something like that. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're no longer a Christian. Uh, it just means that they might not say, they might have been, a I don't know, a Southern Baptist at one point. And now they're like, I'm no longer a Southern Baptist. I might be Orthodox now. I might be part of the historic Ethiopian Orthodox Church or so something like that. Or in some cases, maybe Anglican. But again, you're still part of this fold of historic Christian Values and beliefs, which can can be summarized, I would say, if you're looking for a good, broadened perspective of, you can say, the Apostles' Creed, which summary statement of all of this is Jesus is Lord. If you claim Jesus is Lord, like, this has historically been a part of, like, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's different brands of Christianity, like, if you want to think of it that way. You've got evangelicalism, which so many different Brands and sub-brands and sub within that. You've got Baptists, Gal- Calvary Chapels, Vineyard Movement. There's so—charismatic movement, some variation of, of even an evangelical form. You've got a hardcore, like, right-leaning fundamentalists. But the point that I'd make is this, is that these are just various forms of a context which claim Jesus is Lord alongside, like I said, Orthodox Christians that have been around since the very beginning. In some cases, Roman Catholic, though I wouldn't, again, I would, there's challenges that I would have to address within the Roman Catholic Church, but I'm not going to go to right now. But the point that I'd make is this, is that within this big umbrella is you have the historic Christian faith. And so the idea of deconversion means to say, to walk away from all of that and say, I'm, I'm done with the whole Jesus thing. I'm going to be something else or follow something else or hold on to something else or disregard that in its entirety some form of atheism or apostasy or leaving the faith. Uh, And Again, I wanted to make a distinguishing remark with regard to the difference between unhealthy deconstruction, which oftentimes leads one down a path of cynicism, anger, maybe self-pity, from the idea of a healthy deconstruction, which is what I want to primarily focus some of our energy on this morning to consider, which means I want to kind of bring back, I want to think about this idea of reconstruction. Well, So, again, deconstruction. The idea of breaking down or, or, dis, or dismantling some ideological framework that you've been given is not necessarily a bad thing. It can, it can be a bad thing. There are unhealthy forms of that. There is a deconversion form of that. But I think at the same time, there are healthy versions of that that can actually lead to a greater life and fruitfulness. Again, if you want a good historical uh, angle of that, Martin Luther. I don't know how else to describe what the Reformation was all about other than to describe it if you want to think in terms of a deconstruction a deconstructing of a environment or a culture or an ideological framework that martin luther says no that's that's not what the historical christian teaching of the bible is all about um but the point that i would make is this is i want to think about this idea of a healthy form of reconstruction what does that look like so reconstruction if you want a definition for this, I put it this way. The process of solidifying your core beliefs about God, yourself, and the world. Solidifying. Let me ask you this. Do you know what you believe about God? Not sure question. And how did you come about that? What shaped your understanding about what you believe about God? A podcast? An angry professor? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter? Who are the authorities that you've given access to your soul, to your heart, to your thinking, to your understanding? We, we all have authority figures that we look to. Are they valid authority figures? Part of being a disciple of Jesus means that... At some point, we have to call to question what we've inherited. Not not in an angry, cynical, bombastic type of a sense, but in, in an honest way of saying, is this the faith that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul... That they, that they gave me? Or did somehow did I deviate because some pastor, some preacher that was you know, an influencer that maybe went off the rails at one point is, or because I read a book from What has influenced, what has shaped my understanding? Part of being a disciple of Jesus means we have to go back to the historic Christian faith and let some authority figures reshape, maybe even challenge, maybe even question, maybe simply call us out on false notions that we've had about God. But that's part of the process of just being honest. What's the alternative? (laughs) The alternative is living in a lie. Like holding on to false notions about God. The the problem with lies is that at some point, lies may give us a little bit of traction. But at some point, a lie, we will come face to face with its dead end. And when we hit that dead end, um, things Things fall apart. I mean, I would almost even say this. We either deconstruct our thoughts or at some point our false notions will deconstruct our lives. We will fall apart. And so I think a healthy part of a disciple is to say, Now, what do I believe about God? And where did I get this idea about what I believe about God? And am I deconstructing my deconstruction? Am I questioning my doubts? Or am I just simply giving full place, full access to my heart? For every doubt that I have, do I let the doubt tell me what to do, or do I tell the doubts what to do? This, I, and I would just say this, this is part of the healthy walk with Jesus. It's part of what it means to be a disciple. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just look at a couple of different stories in the Bible, some case studies, some examples, and then I just want to end with some final thoughts, and that will hopefully set the stage for... Our, our next final installment, which will be next week. So there we go. Like I said, one sermon over three weeks. So, so what I want to do today is I want to basically just look at some of the basic elements that are kind of baked into the Bible itself. So if you want to put it this way, I described it this way. Deconstruction, reconstruction, and darkness before light, rhythms in Scripture. This, it, it's kind of a mouthful, but um, hopefully it makes sense. The idea of Deconstructing, thinking about one's idea or thought or concept or construct about life and about God. But deconstructing that, pulling it apart, and and then coming back to some place of reconstructing. Reconstructing an idea about who God is based upon God's revelation. Or If you want another analogy, the idea of uh, darkness comes before light. If you're in a place of darkness right now. You don't need to fear that. It's not the end of the world. It's, it's disconcerting. I get it. It's incredibly disorienting. I know that. I've been there. It feels scary. You feel alone. You feel confused. You feel as if the entirety of what you've known about your world is at its end. And it's possible it is at its end. But the biblical story is one that death. Always precedes new life. So with that, I want to just jump into some biblical rhythms and hopefully it makes sense. The first two I'm just going to go through pretty quickly. The third one is I'm going to spend a little bit more time just reading because there's a lot more that I think is be helpful for us to think about. So this idea of a dark night of unknowing. So, first of all, when you think about this concept of the very opening sequence of the Bible, we have this introduction to God creating, God speaking all things, and this description of the world being in darkness, submerged in darkness, and then God speaking, and then there's light and so on. So, for example, we have the introduction sequence uh, where God says, on the first day, He ultimately creates. Um, all of this stuff, and then he describes it as a day. But one thing I want you to just pay attention to, again, I'm not going to necessarily read this. I just want to make allusion to it. This idea that darkness gave way to not only a new day, but, but, but to newness. In fact, uh, according to the Hebrew calendar, in fact, if you're familiar with this, that the first day of the week, uh, the way that they gauge their day is actually not at sunup. You know, we as Westerners, we're like, oh, it's a new day, sun's up, I see it. Uh, that's not how Jews think. From the very, very beginning, Jews have always thought the first day, the first day of the week, or the first day, of the way that you gauge a new day, that it's newness, is not sun up, it's sun down. Why? God baked this into culture, into creation. He says, this is when the new day comes, when the sun goes down. It's a little bit counterintuitive. God doesn't always work according to our wisdom. But this is God's way, I think, kind of baking into the creation rhythm itself to say that newness comes. Oftentimes in those places where we wouldn't expect it, when it's dark. That's when the newness is coming. That's when the Holy Spirit is is moving over the face of the deep, bringing forth something that's life-giving. That's why I say you don't need to utterly be in despair over the darkness, over the dark night of your soul, over this moment where you feel as if you are deconstructing your life. It is a normal part of the Christian experience or those who fo- follow God. We see this also, secondly, as I move into to the next one, is Abraham, or otherwise known as Abram. Again, you can follow this in the book of uh, Genesis, where he describes Abram as being this guy that was originally from this region called the Ur the Chaldees. We would identify it. More so along the lines of like a modern day, maybe Babylon. So this is where Abram came from. He came from this idea of knowing a form of pantheism of all forms of different paganized type versions of God. And then God comes to him and says, I want you to go... West. Now, this is interesting in the terminology that oftentimes gets associated with the life of Abram and the rest of culture and society and creation and all other human beings, is that there's this notion that gets described, is that when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, they go east to the Garden of Eden. There's this move eastward. Eastward is kind of a symbolic way of identifying moving away from God. (laughs) Abram is asked by God, follow me west towards the setting sun, towards the darkness. But I don't know what's out there. I'm not sure what's there. It's calling me away from my comfort zone. It's calling me away from Ur the Chaldees, from Babylon, from what I know, from what's familiar to me. God says, exactly. I'm calling you into the dark, calling you into the unknown. But that becomes the passage for Abram to know and to learn who God is. God begins to reveal himself to Abraham. And create for him this whole new life. And again, all of this is part of the sequence of events that lead up to the life of Abraham. Jesus. So Abram's the second person for us to think about as he progressively discovers who God is based upon revelation. Now I want to jump to the life of Paul because Paul's a really fascinating character and there's a lot to be said about him. In fact, what I want for us to think about is that Paul was a guy that undergoes a radical, radical deconstruction of everything that he thought he knew. This is why I want to think about the life of Paul. So, in fact, why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I want to just simply read the story of the life of Paul. I'll make a couple of comments, and then I will wrap it up with some final thoughts. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it. We're introduced to this guy by the name of Saul. He, we know him as Paul, Paul the Apostle. But in the storyline of the book of Acts, he's introduced to us as Saul. It says that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any who were belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now Paul who was known as Saul, was this guy that was devoutly religious. He was described as a zealous, as a zealot for God, devoted to God. His heart was filled with zeal for God, which, again, this is just a side note. If you follow the word zeal, oftentimes throughout, especially the Old Testament, most people that were zealous for God were oftentimes people that used violence to promote the ways of God. This is one of the reasons why a lot of times people, they read the Bible like, man, I actually just recently read an article describing how some would charge. It. If you read the Bible, it's the number one pathway towards atheism. I think so. If, if you choose to read it through a lens that has nothing to do with Jesus. If you read it through the lens, which is I think correct, the correct way of reading the Bible, through the lens of Jesus. If you read it through the lens of Jesus, you begin to realize there are a lot of bad dudes throughout the Bible, that do a lot of wicked, evil, horrible things in the name of God. From rape, to incest, to having multiple wives, to murder, all in the name of God. The question is, does the Bible endorse those things? Again, if you read it through the lens that that omits Jesus, you might think that that's what happens. That's not what the Bible is all about. The Bible points to Jesus... And Jesus reorients everything around himself. The point that I make is this, is that Saul was zealous for the things of God. Paul was filled with the knowledge of the word of God. In fact, if you want to think of it this way, Paul, I heard one guy describe it this way, Paul was kind of like like Jerusalem's Bible answer man. Paul, Saul knew everything about God. In fact, if he was the Bible answer man, you hello, caller, you know, this is Saul of Tarsus. You know, give me your next question. Yeah, is Jesus- Christ the Messiah, Saul would be like, Absolutely not. We know for certain that he is not the Messiah because Deuteronomy says, Cursed is he who hangs on the tree. Jesus hung on the tree. There's no possible way that the Messiah can be cursed by God. It's a contradiction. Answer finished. He's not the Messiah. That was before Saul Tarsus met Jesus and had his entire world, his entire theology ideological construct of who God is completely appended, But that's what I'm talking about. He had not gone through the dark night yet. He had not deconstructed yet. But this is the story of his deconstruction. Prior to his deconstruction, prior to his dark night, prior to his night of unknowing, he was clinging tenaciously to his idea and thoughts about who God was, and he was violently pushing forward his agenda. Listen how it goes on. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around about him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to me, who are you, Lord? And then he said to him, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what that you are to do. And then for three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate or drank. So Saul's life was completely struck down, like literally transformed. Uh, Everything was taken away from him. And here he is just in this space trying to make sense of who Jesus is in light of what just happened to him. Verse 9 or verse 10, uh, chapter 9, goes on, uh, says this. Verse 10 says, now there was a disciple at Damascus, so we're introduced to another character. His name is Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said to him, here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision the name of Ananias Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So here's, here's Saul. Ananias is just the, and, and we don't really know much about him. He's just a disciple who's trying to follow Jesus faithfully in the midst. In fact, he was probably on Saul Tarsus' hit list. So it's just, again, there's like a, an undertone of incredible irony here. It's like God calls Ananias, Ananias, hey, you know that guy Saul? I want you to go. Pray for him. Go hang out and talk with him. And he's like, But God, that guy is looking for people to arrest and maybe kill, and I'm certain I'm on that hit list. God's like, Yeah, but he belongs to me now. I did some stuff in his life, I changed him. In fact, right now he's praying. This is one of the first things I would say. When you are in a place of darkness, when you cannot pray, say your prayers. You're like, Wait, what? What was Paul doing? He was praying. What was he praying? I, my guess is that he was probably just praying what he was trained to pray throughout his entire life. It was probably the Shema. Which is, you know, heroes, is here the Lord. Your God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and mind. When you don't know what to pray, say your prayers. Some of you are like, I don't know what prayers to pray. Again, another one of the examples of how disconnected we are from the historic Christian faith. You can start with just the Lord's Prayer. You can even throw in... The Shema. Memorize those things. So that when you don't know what to pray. You can sit down and just say. Our Father. Who is in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us today. Those. That need forgiveness. Protect us from evil. When you don't know what to pray. Say your prayers. That's what Saul's doing. So he gets approached by this guy named Ananias. It goes on to say verse thirteen. But Ananias said, Lord, I've heard of him. Go down to verse 15. But then the Lord said to him, go. He's a chosen instrument. And he will carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him all that he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So what happens? Ananias comes into him, lays hands on him. Remember, Ananias is probably on his hit list. Can, can you imagine can you imagine Jesus asking you, hey, go pray for this person? And you know that person just has You're ill out. They hate you. That's all that you know. They may even wish you dead, but you go out of obedience to Jesus and you say, okay, I'll lay hands up. And it's in that moment, something like scales fall from Saul's eyes. A reconstruction begins to happen. You know the context, right? Love. Saul is being shown love like he's never been shown before. Love begins to put his world back together again. I would suggest, this is what we long for more than anything. Like When our worlds come undone, for whatever reason, we have been abused, we have been misused, we have been broken down for whatever reason. Maybe it has to do with false teaching, false doctrine, maybe someone has let us down or offended us or hurt us or taken advantage. Something has happened to our world crumbles. I would suggest that one of the ways that begins to reconstruct our understanding of who God is is love. Ananias shows Saul of Tarsus what it means to sit down and have a meal, what it means to be welcomed, what it means to be loved. Verse 19, it says, and he was taking food, and he was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard it were amazed, and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the priests. And then Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the story of a man who we watch his deconstruction and his reconstruction. It's amazing. Again, like I said, the darkness is not your end. I think there's things that we need to address in order to come out the other end, to deconstruct in a healthy fashion that doesn't leave us in the end cynical and angry and embittered and self-pitying. We need salvation from that. and I'm just going to give you these three things and four things, and then I'm going to end. And In fact, I'm going to have Dan come on up as they close us in a song. But I just want to think about these because as I end now, this will set the stage for what I will look at next week. But I think at the end of the day, the big idea is this that I want to leave with you, and it's a question. Is reenchantment possible? Is reenchantment possible? Is it possible to come into a place again where the life of Jesus is absolutely beautiful and good again? I believe so. Absolutely believe so. Again, like I said, the darkness does not have to be your end. There's newness that God often brings us into. I think the four things, again, I'll just talk about these very, very briefly, and then we'll go into them next week. We need these four things firing in our lives in order to help bring about a really healthy reconstruction number one we need wisdom in other words we need knowledge applied knowledge uh, given to our lives that comes from sages and saints not celebrities we need to maybe acknowledge the fact that as a culture we have been more enamored we've given more space to influencers and celebrities than we have saints But we need wisdom. Secondly, we need healing. For some of us, the emotional, mental, in some cases even physical damage or brokenness that we've incurred, we need healing. Jesus is the healer. And thirdly is this idea of community. Ananias provides this incredible communal relationship to Saul. And then lastly, again, there's this idea of faith. At some point, there needs to be a leap of faith or a leap to faith, the way you described this a couple of weeks ago. Stepping into a, a way of saying, God, my faith is weak, but help my unbelief. I want to believe in you. At the end of the day, one truth I'll leave you with. In fact, Dan, come on up. Come on up. Let's go. Is this idea. When you find yourself in the darkness, the one thing my strong encouragement for you would be to not let go of. It's a simple three-word phrase. Jesus is Lord. That's what changed Saul of Tarsus' life. Jesus is Lord. That phrase unleashes possibilities that you could never even conceive of. It reignites the imagination. I also believe that this idea of Jesus as Lord reshapes not only our future, our past, our present. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the phrase that has always, from its very beginning foundations of the church, shaped it. It will be the only thing 2,000 years into the future, if Jesus still, still has not come back, that will be shaping future generations. Jesus is Lord. Whether or not the future church is going to be, you know, the metaverse. I don't know. Jesus will still always be Lord. The one thing, my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, maybe you need healing. Maybe there's areas in your life where Jesus wants to reshape and re-challenge and help you to rethink who he is. But I promise you, the one thing that all of it will boil down to is this acknowledgement that Jesus is large.